0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So hey, you're going to need um, your Uversion app if you have it, so go ahead and get that out because there's a detachment you're going to want. Uh, I have a handout for us today, and we may not have enough handouts. We ran out of worship guides. We may run out of handouts. Um... <clears throat> Here's what I'm going to need. I'm going to need you to be with me and let's be together in the spirit because I want to offer something to us. Uh, every year during Eastertide, I try to take us to the road, of, road to Emmaus and then from that place, we move into a different kind of conversation together. So today is going to be less like a sermon and more like a teaching and may even require a little discussion and we are going to go our full hour and a half today. I'm not going that long, but we are going to go our full hour and a half today, so bear with it, but I do believe that when we're done I believe that you'll be, you'll be grateful that we, we had this conversation together because I think it matters, um, especially, well, especially today. So, all right, in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. <clears throat> on that same day, which that day is Easter, two disciples were traveling the village to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. But they were unaware that it was Jesus walking alongside them, for they were prevented from recognizing him. Okay, so hold that. They were prevented from seeing that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, what are you talking about as you walk along? And they stopped, their faces downcast or depressed. The one named Cleopas said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who's unaware of the things that have taken place over the last few days? Kind of snarky, right? Kind of hurt sounding, right? Jesus replies, what do you mean? They said to him, there's things that happened to Jesus from Nazareth. By what he did, and, show, and he showed that he was a powerful prophet who pleased God and all the people. And then the chief priests and our leaders had him arrested and sentenced to die on a cross. We had hoped he would be the one to free us from Israel for revolution." But it's already been three days since all this happened. Some women in our group surprised us. They had gone to the tomb early in the morning but did not find the body of Jesus. They came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who told them that he was alive. Some men from our group went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said. But they didn't see Jesus either. Then Jesus asked the two disciples, Why can't you understand? How can you be so so slow to believe all that the prophets said? Didn't you know that the Messiah would have to suffer before he was going to glory? Verse 27. Jesus then, and listen to this verse if you will. Jesus then explained everything written about himself in the scriptures. Everybody say the scriptures. Beginning with the law of Moses and the book of prophets. When the two two of them came near the village where they were going, Jesus seemed to be going farther. They begged him, stay with us. It's already late. The sun is going down. So Jesus went to the house to stay with them. After Jesus sat down to eat, now, I want you to pause for a minute and ask yourself, does this sound familiar from other stories in the Bible? And then the Gospels. After Jesus sat down to eat, he took some bread, he blessed it, and broke it, and he gave it to them. What does that sound like? Eucharist, right? Yeah. And then at that moment, you hear that? At that moment, their eyes were open to see that it was Jesus. Mm. Jesus in the broken bread. Jesus at the table. And at once he disappeared and they said to each other, when he talked with us along the road and explained the scriptures to us, everybody say the scriptures. The scriptures. Didn't it warm our hearts? So they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And the two disciples found the 11 apostles and the others gathered together. The word of the Lord. Amen. There's a lot of places to go with this text. There's a couple of places I'd like to take us today. First thing that always sticks out to me in this story, every time I read it, every time I offer it to us on a Sunday in Easter tide, is verse 16. They were unaware that it was Jesus walking alongside them, for they were prevented from recognizing Him. Now, scholars have thought all the day long about what does it mean for them to be prevented from recognizing Jesus. Like why, and why does the text feel the need to tell us that they were prevented from seeing Jesus. And there are many different conclusions. Much smarter people have drawn from the language of this text. But I have an idea. And it's really the same idea every year. That maybe they were prevented from seeing Jesus in this moment. Not only to teach them something about Jesus. But to also teach us something about Jesus. And maybe it begins with this idea. Our eyes are not the source of our hope. I, can see, I can't see the air that I breathe, but I know that I can breathe. I can't see heat, but I know I am warm. And maybe God knows that we tend to latch on to what is right in front of us. And we can't always see what's really happening in front of us or around us. We have an old saying, you can't see the forest, what? And this is how we approach life a lot of times. Like we interpret what we see in light of what we know. We have words that describe what we see. We reach for those words. Those words come with thoughts and definitions. And we apply those words with the thoughts and definitions to what we see. And we call it what we know. We interpret things that we see in light of what we know. Sometimes we interpret what we don't see in light of what we also know. Not don't know. But we interpret what we don't see in light of what we know. And And here's what I mean. When you know a room, like when you really, really know a room and the lights are off, you know the layout of the room. You can navigate the room. You might bump a knee or a toe, but for the most part, you can navigate the room because you really know the room when the lights are on and when the lights are off, you know where things are. If you walk into a dark room, never being in the room, or never even really studying the room, never being in the room a lot when the lights are on, you're liable to trip and fall all over the place. We interpret what we see in light of what we know, and sometimes that's how we live our lives when we can't see. And living our lives with a deep understanding Of the biblical story is the call. And living our lives without a deep understanding of the biblical story is like playing a game of cards with a 42 card deck. You'll be able to play the game, but it won't work out well for you or everybody else. Unless you steal their cards. We need to know the biblical story. We need to know the story of God's grace. We need to know the story of God's mercy. We need to know God's promises. And when we can't see God's goodness, we then can trust His grace. When we can't see God move, we can then trust His mercy. When we can't see God's presence, we can then trust His promises. And we can learn from this story of these two disciples traveling on this road. to Emmaus, that even in the midst and unknown to them, Jesus was there. That he was present with them, even though they could not see him. Years ago, many years ago, I was in a really hard place in my life. And I was ready to call it over. And I went outside at night and I was crying out to the God who made promises, but who, in my circumstances and the conclusions I had drawn, had failed. And I remember looking up to the sky and I remember not seeing a moon anywhere in this dark sky, it was covered by the clouds. And as I looked up, I remember seeing the clouds kind of brush past the moon. And for a moment, I saw a glimpse of a full moon, a round moon. And then for a moment, that glimpse went away, and it turned into and settled into a half moon. And I realized that no matter what I see, the moon is still round. And the clouds won't live in front of the moon because the moon will not be overtaken by the clouds. And that sometimes is the hiddenness of Christ. Covered in the road of unmet expectations, broken dreams, and crushed hopes. The moon is still round. It's just really hard to believe that when you can't see the moon. Which is why I love verse 19 in this story. Because, see, these disciples are frustrated because Jesus asks, what are you talking about? And Cleopas, in his hurt and in his hopelessness, offers really sharp words to Jesus, this stranger, and he says, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who's unaware of things that have taken place the last few days? Now, the irony of this is Jesus is the only visitor in Jerusalem who actually does know. But he doesn't know, Cleopas. And what I love about verse 19 is the question Jesus asks. What do you mean? Jesus gives them room to express their hurt. Do you see that? Like he hears them out. He allows them to share their conclusions that they have drawn from their circumstances. He listens to their story. Beloved, what we learn from the resurrected Jesus is consistent with what we learn from Jesus before the crucifixion. Jesus respects the human experience. He doesn't correct their version of the story while they tell it. He allows them to tell it to the end. He could have interrupted and said, wait, 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 wait. You've got that all wrong. He lets them voice their own conclusion that they have drawn from their own felt circumstances, their very real circumstances. And so when you read the text, they literally summarize the story of Jesus' ministry and messianic hopes attached to him that that, that they so abruptly and surprisingly felt was crushed by the events that are now three days old. Their dreams of liberation, a political revolution, were broken. Their hopes of Christ as king were crushed. And in their retelling of the story, as they see it and understand it, they say one of the most heartbreaking things of all. We had hoped. We had hoped. Past tense. Unmet expectations. Broken dreams. Crushed hopes. And in all of these real feelings and honest conclusions drawn from their circumstances, Jesus is actually there giving them room to tell all that they feel and know. And they don't know. But Jesus is there. He's still there walking by their side along this road of unmet expectations broken dreams and crushed hopes and i believe that this is at least one thing that luke wants us to see it's one of the th- it's one of the themes in all three of the stories that are tucked into this whole section of your of your bible Back to back, where the reality of the risen Jesus is revealed unexpectedly and unknowingly in the midst of unmet expectations, broken dreams, and crushed hopes. In each story, in each story, the conclusion the disciples had drawn about their circumstances need clarification. Are you with me? So in the first story, we see the women on the tomb Easter morning. The disciples had drawn the conclusion that their expectations of liberation would remain unmet; the hopes of Christ as liberating King crushed. But an encounter with two angels announcing to them that Jesus had risen changed their interpretation. Their conclusion, drawn from their circumstances, needed clarification. In the story following that, many of the disciples are hiding out in the room, confused and afraid. Jesus' body is gone, and they don't know what to make of it. The women come in, tell them that the body is gone. They go check, it's true, the body is gone. But they don't know what to do with that. The women say he's been risen, but they don't have the theological imagination. Everybody say imagination. They don't have the imagination for that. Their conclusion, drawn from their circumstances, needed clarification. So Jesus shows up, freaks him out a little, and reveals that he is there in the flesh. Christ is with all the disciples as they huddle together in a room of unmet expectations and confusion. Christ is with the two disciples walking alongside them, unknown to them, on their road of broken dreams and crushed hopes to Emmaus. And in both stories, the conclusions... Each of the disciples had drawn from their circumstances. Needed clarification. But as they awaited clarification, Jesus honored the human experience. For what it was. But he didn't leave them in it. See, what else ties these stories together, among many other themes, is that when Jesus is present... Jesus will eventually speak. And if we listen when Jesus speaks, Jesus will eventually clarify the conclusions we have drawn from our circumstances. And we will be invited to reinterpret what we see in light of what Jesus says. Are you with me? So back to the Emmaus story for a moment. Remember how Luke tells us that Jesus hears them out, the two disciples tell their conclusions to the story, and they don't even know that they're talking to Jesus, and when they finish their story, Jesus reminds them of a different story, of a a, a bigger story. You remember that in the text? See, what happens is as they're telling Jesus their story, Jesus receives their retelling of the story and takes that retelling and points it and places it in the context of a larger story, the biblical story. The as a matter of fact, when you look at verse 27, look at what it says. Jesus then explained everything written about Himself in the Scriptures, beginning with the law and the prophets. Jesus reminds them of God's intentions with the world and leads them to the larger story of God in the Scriptures so that their story will find a context and a more faithful interpretation capable of giving them hope. See, the conclusions drawn from their circumstances needed clarification. And Jesus used the scriptures to help them rethink what they had concluded. When Jesus speaks, He clarifies. And the scriptures are the witness to that clarification. See, that's the problem. Because we don't always know how to read scriptures we say read your bible and so a lot of times what happens we open it up and we read the bible and we read it like it's a flat text like it never like it just like it just is what it is all the way through and the thing about that is we don't read poetry like a newspaper do we And we don't read a newspaper like we do the u.s constitution we allow the literary genre of the text and the purpose of the text shape how we approach the text And yet, we treat the Bible, a sacred text, very differently sometimes. And so we're left to our own devices. And then what ends up happening is we place the Bible above Jesus, forgetting the fact that the Bible is actually secondary to Jesus. The Bible lifts Jesus up, bears witness to Jesus. I even heard people say, I go to a Bible-believing church. I say, well, I go to a Jesus-believing church, and we use the Bible to believe deeply in that. I go to a Bible-preaching church. I go to a Jesus-preaching church, and we use the Bible to do that. Do you see the difference? there's a marked difference in understanding where the priority is. Because one time Jesus was dealing with religious and political leaders and they were using the Bible... As this moral tool, as this tool of trying to set right the world. As to set right their government. To try to make Israel the kind of nation they thought it should be in the midst of Rome. And they were doing this. And Jesus looked at them one day as they were arguing and doing all the things that they were doing. And he said, you know, you don't even get the point of the scriptures. You read the scriptures day and night. You pour over them thinking that you find life in them. Not remembering that every single thing you read points to me. Every reading of Scripture is interpreted through the person of Jesus. That's Jesus' own words. And yet oftentimes, we don't approach the Scriptures that way. Oftentimes, we turn to the Scriptures, and we think somehow that we can read them any old way. And we need, what I wanted to say today, and I wanted to take some time, we need to pay attention to how we read the Scriptures. When the scriptures are read, like the church's constitution, or a road map, or a love letter, we put ourselves in danger of misreading the scriptures. We take a communal book written to a people and a community and treat it like a book written to just a person. And reality is we'll either allow the Scriptures to primarily address our hearts where God is all about me, making me a better leader, making me a better whatever, making me more concerned with my life and feeding me to nourish me and my soul for my life and my children and the kind of life that God wants for me. Are you following me Come on now. here? Come on. Or we read the Scriptures primarily addressing our minds. Making us more concerned with having the right ideas and right beliefs to complete the right tasks. And what I'm trying to propose this morning, as I've done many times over 12 years, is that the Scripture wants to do far more than that. The Scriptures want to do more than inform us. They want to reform us in light of the purposes of God. So, here's a nerd word. So bear with me. The Bible is meant, in my opinion, to be God's self-disclosure to the world. In the beginning, what? God. In the end, the people reign with God. The Bible is meant, above all things, to be, in my opinion, God's self-disclosure to the world. And to form within those who worship Him a renewed imagination. Everybody say, renewed imagination. Now, I know the word, I use the word imagination a lot. And I know that word feels all kinds of ways, makes all kinds of feelings with us in different ways. But here's why, like, this is what we need. We, part of our problem is we don't have the imagination for these things. We grow up and we mistake apathy for maturity. And we say to people who are passionate about things, oh, you just wait until you grow up and you'll see that it doesn't work that way. Because back in my day when I lived in South Georgia and had to walk up the hill both ways barefoot in the snow that you, like, and that's how we go with things. And we're like, oh, you're just young and, and immature and, oh, you're naive. Like, that's how, I mean, we do it nasally, too. Like, you don't even know that. That's what you all sound like. Like, that's what we do. And that's not, that's not the deal. But that's what we end up doing. And so why we have big idea is to cultivate childlike faith. The reason why we do it with the kids, not just for the kids, is to cultivate childlike faith. Because if you want a renewed imagination, be with children. Amen. Okay, come on. Welcome the children. <laughs> I don't even like them very much. But like, like, I mean, just playing. Uh, Ian was born. I was like, what? No, like, like, but that's like, it's, it's a renewed imagination. They teach us about believing in things that we don't think are possible. They believe in the Avengers. They believe in these things that are big and fantasy and fantastical. And we are just, we are mature. And we don't have the imagination to see that in the Scriptures, God is trying to actually provoke an imagination to see more than we see. Yeah. On, and to reinterpret what we see in light of what God says is true. The Bible, as God's self-disclosure to the world, to form within those who worship Him a renewed imagination is a beautiful sacred text. Listen to me. The Bible consists of 40 different inspired and divinely guided authors. Everybody say 40. 40 different authors from three different continents. Everybody say three written over the course of 1,500 years. Say 1,500. And remarkably, standing the test of time and even science, holds up telling one coherent story. How is that possible? Because the Bible is God's self-disclosure to the world to reveal to us God's intentions with the world, what God is doing in the world, and what our role in that doing can be. In the world that is and is to come, the Bible is meant to be seen as God's self disclosure to the world and reveals this intention and proposes, proposes to us, everybody say to us, proposes to us a different way of life for us and wants to form within us, those who worship God, a renewed imagination. So we can see what God is doing on the road to Emmaus. Because that's the story. So what we need is what I've called for years a historical imagination. Everybody say historical imagination. All right, Bill, you got me on the camera thing, bro. Because like I ain't like, hey, y'all, like I'm about to. We call it historical imagination. Because we need to understand That the scripture tells us a story of God And in that story Tells us what is sacred and true That scripture tells us That in these stories There are things that the people of God Call true and sacred And so when we see those things Live that we say Oh well that's true and sacred And then they say And it was God who parted the Red Sea And so we see that in history And we see And we, so that's the historical But we need the imagination With the historical Because we need to be able to envision New possibilities of the God who kept his promises there keeping his promises here and if the God of history parted the Red Sea the God of the present and the future can still part those seas are you with me? the things that were called sacred here will be sacred there because they've been deemed sacred in the story they're going to be deemed sacred in my own and so then I interpret my experiences in light of the experiences of the people of God so that I'm awakened to the possibilities of what God can do in the present moment are you with me? you good? You following me? We need the imagination for that. One of the reasons we can't believe it is because we don't know that it's possible. Except we sing songs about it, but we can't point to the possibilities. God can do all things. We can't point to any of the things he did. We need to know the story. Because we lean into the story to interpret what we see. We know where the story begins and ends, and where it climaxes, and where it meets. And it always, the story, always meets in the greatest self-disclosure God gave the world in Jesus, where the written word became the living word because God was tired of speaking words and needed to show us what it all looks like with skin on. And we need. This historical imagination. And what we'll find is we'll be invited into a different way of understanding who we are as people in Williamsburg, Virginia, United States of America 2022. We'll understand our role in the world because we'll understand God's intentions with the world in the world in which we live in this moment. And what will end up happening. What will end up happening is if we do this, if we take the biblical story seriously and challenge how we typically read the story, what will happen is we will develop an imagination that is counter to the world's imagination. Are you with me? Because then what people will do is they'll reach back to their political houses and their language houses and throw out words to try and make sense of what they see in you. And they'll call you things. They'll call you liberal. They'll call you conservative. They'll call you socialist Marxist. They'll call you all kinds of things. They'll call you by other names. They'll call you all kinds of things that you aren't. Because it's indicative of the fact that they're trying to figure out what to do with you when all you're trying to do is be faithful. There you go. And you can point to faithfulness because you know the story from which you're living. And you're saying to people, what you don't believe is possible, God says is possible, so I'm going to live like it's possible because God keeps God's promises. And it changes things. And the people you say don't welcome, I'm going to welcome because God welcomes and we're just going to have to figure out what to do about welcoming each other together. And it changes things. And then you're just weird. Had a really, I'm not going to mention who, a really dear, dear friend, dear friend, tell me he was asked what member of the church he was and he said I'm part of Williamsburg Christian Church and the person said what? isn't that a church for homeless people? Oh, how we read the story matters because when we don't know the story we're left to our own resources to understand what we see We're left to our own resources to figure out what to do. So here's what I did. Stay with me. Come on now. I'm going to ask, and not everybody's going to get one of these, and I apologize for that. Um, John, can you hand these out? Natalie, can you hand these out? John, here you go. Okay, one caveat about what you're about to receive. Okay, so bear with me. This is going to sound like a bigger deal than it is, I assure you. What you're about to receive is something that I have literally been working on for eight years. Okay? This is eight years of work for me. I have spent time thinking it through, praying it through, testing it with other people 55 times smarter than me, which is not as hard to do. And I just, I've worked through this as many ways as I can because it's a dangerous thing to hand something to the people of God and suggest that this is a way to read Scripture. Faithfully. Are you with me? That's a dangerous proposition to make. And so, for eight years, don't read ahead, please. For eight years, I, look, y'all, y'all are just like, oh, what well, is this? Like, eight years, like, Dad, this eight years? Like, Fred, really? Like, oh, poor Fred. Like, like even when Aaron looked at it, I said, eight years, can you help me fold this? He goes, this? I'm like, yeah. Like, I, like, right, right. Like, yeah, no, no. Because here's what I want to propose I want to propose that we need to tend to how we read the scriptures. Because too many times we're trying to master the scriptures rather than allow the master of the scriptures to shape us. We're trying to interpret the scriptures rather than allowing the scriptures to interpret us. And so we read devotionals and Bible studies in shorthand, and I'm not knocking any of those things. And I want to be clear with you on this. This is not the only way. What did you just hear me say? Right. I am not suggesting this is the only way. Man, I'm not even sure it's the best way. Like, or a -A best way. Like, I even say that literally in the introduction. I say this is not the only way, and I'm not even sure this is a good way, but I think it is a way, right? So, I wanted to be humble with this with you because I do believe this, and I want to offer it to you for you to do with it what you desire. When we read the scriptures, it matters how we approach it. All right? So, I decided that it's probably helpful to say that there are five movements within we can flow in our reading of the scripture. Now, there's always a danger to five ways to a better prayer life and 16 ways to be the husband you've always wanted to be, and all the different things. Like, there's always a danger with the tasks in this. All right, so I want to again, I say that too in the introduction. I called these movements because movement has this ebb and flow kind of idea. It's not static and linear and task oriented. But I do suggest that this is a faithful way, at least, of approaching the Scriptures. If you believe that the Scriptures are God's self-disclosure to the world, that reveal God's intentions with the world, and what humanity is and can be, if God rescues humanity from humanity's own self in the reign of sin, into a life with God forever. If that becomes a shorthand for you as to what the Scriptures are, then I think this can be helpful. Are you ready? So you want to do some work? movement one. I suggest that all scripture reading begin with what I call movement one, which I call their society. In other words, we need to make room and spend a little time thinking about the history, the context, the culture, the moment, the world in which they lived, and why that word, why that thing, that text was said to them in that moment. Now here's the problem with that. You can overthink that. And I'm suggesting even in here don't. But here's the other problem with that. We're gonna need help with that. So what movement one does is it pushes us into the communal realities of Bible study. Bible study is best understood within its context within a community. That's right. So movement number one then means I gotta to go to Mike and say, Mike, what do you know about the culture here? Like I didn't live there, so. And Mike says, well, I don't know. Like, let's talk to Maddie. Maddie. We get together and we, we discern that together. But here's what I say. You're going to notice that at the bottom there's some takeaways. Just ask. So, the first question to ask under movement one is what is the text saying to them living in their society? And what is the text trying to do to them while living in their society? Because I don't believe the Bible's ever just trying to tell us something. I think the Bible's trying to do something to us by the Spirit. So, the question isn't what does this mean for me? Because that's usually how we read the Bible. Like, right? well, what does this mean for me? What's the application to this verse I just read? That's not the right first question. A better first question would be, what is this text trying to say to them living in their society? What is it trying to do to them in their society? So, for example, when Leviticus says, of all books, Leviticus, everybody's favorite Bible book. That's the one book everybody skips during the yearly reading plan, right? Like, like you can't even, like, what's in Leviticus? In Leviticus when it says, or in Deuteronomy when it says, when you are sheaving your fields and you're getting your olives, let the olives that fall to the ground stay. So that they can be left for the widow, the poor, the immigrant, and the orphan, right? So the question to that verse is, what is that that verse saying to them? Well, it's saying, it's saying, watch out for the stand and the microphone. When the microphone falls, you leave it on the ground for someone else to pick up. You know, Natalie did say to me, Fred, let me move this so you don't do that. In the second gathering. I said, No, I've lost weight. What's the text? Why are you laughing so hard? What's the text trying to say to them? It's saying, when you read around the context, it says just what you think. When you sheave the, the, the work of your field and you let some fall to the ground, you need to care for those who don't have a field. Now, what's the text trying to do to them? Because this wasn't written to a dude who owns a field. This is written to a people who are made up of some people who own fields. You read with me? How this works? It's written to a community. Yahweh is saying, there are always going to be people in your society who are not going to have. And I don't want that. So since you have enough, let what falls be for them so that everybody has something together. And Yahweh specifically names, in that text, the widow, the poor, the immigrant, and the orphan. Because Yahweh is not willing to settle for abstractions. He's not willing to settle for the needy, or the less fortunate, or the underserved. He wants to be specific. Because those will be the specific groups who are oftentimes outside of the margins of power and privilege. And not because people wake up one day and simply say, how can we abandon these people? But that's just because how the world, given to the reign of sin and death, is going to work. And that's the first question. So you learn that. And then you move to movement two. Movement two. Which is where you look at the church in our society. So now we've settled that the best we think, we know. And now we move to the church in our society. And we ask the question, what is the text saying to the church? Notice that it's not to me. To the church living in our society. And what is this text trying to do to the church? Do you see the way that works? Because it's not me yet. It's still a we. It's still an us. So what does this text say to the church? Well, then help me out. What would that text say to the church? Yeah, that those with resources among you take care of those. Who lack a certain amount of resources and specifically the widow, the poor, the immigrant and the orphan are specific social descriptions of people who are outside of the margins of provision and power. So the church then should turn its attention to making sure that those folks aren't neglected. Another thing it could be saying to the church is don't hoard, don't be greedy. Share among yourselves. It's another possible thing it's saying. But you see the questions you're asking? So now you get to look at a church, and you get to say, is the church I'm a part of doing that? And if the church I'm a part of is not doing that, then I go to question number three, right? Which, what is my place in it? So what's my place in that text? In other words, what is my place in this text, what I should think, believe, see, feel, and do in response to this text? What's my role as a part of the church that's receiving this word? What does Fred do now? So Fred looks at his resources. Fred tends to his beliefs, his feelings about marginalized neighbors, about the widow, the poor, the immigrant, and the orphan. Fred turns his attention to those people. And then I turn my attention to my church family and say, let's turn our attention. And then if I see my church family not doing this, I ask my church leadership, why are we not doing this? What is our role in this? You see how this works? And then I do my part of that. It might look like advocacy in society. It might look like speaking truth to power. It might look like dismantling systems of injustice. It will always look like correcting the inequalities of society out there inside here. You with me? Those inequalities out there always get corrected inside the people of God when the people of God are faithful. That's actually the purpose of the text. And then we move to the fourth move. Summed up in Christ. How does my interpretation of this text. Align or conflict. With what I see in the actions and teachings of Jesus. So I've done the work within community. We tried to deal with their society. We tried to deal with the church and our society. I've tried to deal with my role in it. So as a follower of Jesus. Do I see my interpretation. Backed up, supported, exemplified. In the actions and teachings of Jesus. And if I do. Roll on. If I don't. What should I do? Reconsider my interpretation. Go back to the community and be like, you like, I don't know, I don't see Jesus doing that, or I don't see Jesus, like, I don't see that aligning. Like, I see some conflict here. And then we rethink it. Why? Because all the scriptures that were written, Jesus said in John 5, 38 to 40, climax point in or summed up in what? Him. So all interpretations have to land and be filtered through what we see in the actions of Teachings of Jesus, But that's not all. There's a fifth movement that I think is important. And it's called personal bias. We all read from a social location. Everybody say social location. It's a technical term. In other words, we all read the Bible from our very literal bodies and place in society. You with me? Every one of us. And that's okay. And I want to say that's okay. Everybody say that's okay. that's okay. We don't need to feel guilty or ashamed about that. That is the reality. But we need to make sure that we're at least considering how those realities play into how we read the text. For example, how I might read movement one, two, three, and especially three and four in this, my role in Christ, may be different than how Garrett reads it who's in a wheelchair. You with me? Because Garrett being in a wheelchair is going to read that text differently than me who is differently abled and not in a wheelchair. And Garrett specifically may read it very different because Garrett hasn't always lived in a wheelchair. So his reading of that text may have a different shade that is either helpful or even harmful. My reading of the text may have a different shade that might be either helpful or harmful. The social location, our religious traditions, our upbringings, our value systems, our assumptions, our ideologies, our gender, our race, our ethnicity, our ability, our class, our social class, all do impact how we read the text. Even the Bible says that'll happen. But we don't know that, you know, because... So we need to tend to the social location of our bodies, literally our bodies. For example, I was raised to believe that playing instruments in a worship service was wrong, that it was sin, and that churches that did that were unfaithful to the Bible. And I had Bible verses that I could have beat you up with to prove that to you. And I stood in pulpits and taught that. I could not have been more incorrect in my own view, right? Right? So what am I trying to illustrate? That I've been super duper wrong in how I read the Bible. And I may be super duper wrong right now. But pointing back into a place of tending to how I read it and doing it within community can help me learn where I am wrong. But my location and religious upbringing made me judge every one of you using the same Bible that you used to tell me otherwise. Because we realize, right, that some of the worst atrocities in human history were done using the Bible. We know that, right? One of the reasons I talk about racial injustice all the time is because racial injustice is not merely an American problem. It's not a Western problem. Racial injustice and the idea that there are some races and ethnicities better than others is actually rooted in theological history. It's a historical theology problem. The pain and the roots to those ethnic superiority beliefs are driven by Bible theology. It was how people read the Bible, particularly Anglo Euro white folk read the Bible and moved that through. Most of the injustices we see in this world have theological roots, but I also want to say some of the most beautiful things we've ever seen in the world come because of how the Bible was understood. Are you with me? There have been some life-giving movements, from hospitals to workforce development programs to orphanages to care groups to social services concepts to certain kinds of, like, social liberation movements. The Bible was used for those things, too. So the very same Bible abolitionists used to dismantle enslavement is the very same Bible proponents of enslavement used to justify it. What's the problem? The Bible? Or the way we read it? And that's the work. So me, in my body, if I was raised up in a tradition to believe, and I was, that women, specifically, and if you're visiting here, we do this all the time. We we have to be real with how this all stuff fleshes out. Was read. I mean, I was taught, and I, was, I read Apostle Paul to believe that um, women shouldn't talk in a worship gathering because that's what you could read Paul saying, right? Some of us know that. Raise your hand if you were kind of taught some semblance of that, right? Yeah. And that's how I taught. So women were just, you know, left to, like, do communion bread and, and sit there. And if you had questions about the Bible, you could ask it at home. And that's what I was taught. Matter of fact, when I was baptized as a 13-year-old, I was no longer allowed to be taught by a woman in Christ because I was a baptized male, and men are in charge. Men are the leaders, the home, men are the leaders of the church. Men are the leaders of the home, because they're the leaders of the church. That's the way we worked it out in our theology, until one day, I started thinking through something I'd heard at a conference, of all things, and this guy stood up and said something about baptismal identity. And he looked at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 28. He described to us how when Paul says in Christ, we're all baptized into Christ, but there's neither Jew or Greek, male and female, slave and free, that what Paul is doing is he's taking the three dominant pillars of a Greco-Roman society, gender, class, and ethnicity, and he's deconstructing them entirely and placing them secondary to baptismal identity. In a society where those three pillars were the foundation upon which everything was built, gender, ethnicity, and class, Paul is flipping and turning actually right side up underneath baptismal identity, and for the first time in my life, the Holy Spirit let the lights come on, and I started thinking to myself, well, that's what it means, because I certainly don't believe in gender blindness, right, we treat, we, that's how we treat other things like colorblindness, but I certainly don't believe that, I use the same text, it's amazing, people who use the text, that text, and talk about like colorblindness are the same people who don't use that text, talk about gender blindness, see the inconsistency there, and that's my point, how we read the text matters, and I started realizing something, that wait a minute, That my sisters have a baptismal identity that makes us one. And one in the kingdom means, you know, one. And that we are both equal sharers of the inheritance of God. And Paul certainly wouldn't, like, contradict his own theology, would he? So then I thought, well, I need to read Paul's theology through baptismal identity. Because in theology, baptismal identity is like a primal theological commitment. That's a born-again reality. But then something else hit me. What did Jesus do? Because I had the bracelet, see. And the bracelet changes everything. And so I looked at it and I thought to myself, what did he do? And I looked at Jesus and I thought to myself, wait a minute. The women following around Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 7 and 8 were the ones funding his ministry. Women were funding the ministry of Jesus. Jesus. Women were managing money for Jesus. Matter of fact, of all the people to preach the first resurrection sermon, it was not Peter, not John. It was a woman. And I started thinking, was God not able to get the timing right to make sure that Peter was the guy who preached the first sermon? Like, I'm serious. I would think these things. Like, like guys are like, like, shouldn't he be the one to announce it? I mean, come on, Peter, Pondley, Rockabilly Church, all the. Like, and God was like, oh, it was a woman. Like, he, there was in, I think there was intention. And it was a woman who was the first person to ever announce the risen Jesus. Not only that, it occurred to me that the disciples didn't abandon Jesus at the cross, save only John. The male disciples abandoned Jesus at the cross, save only John. The women disciples stayed with Jesus at the cross. I started learning all these different things about the sisters. Amen. I was like, what? (laughs) And it began to change how I understood my sister's roles in the kingdom of God. And I had to do a lot of working that stuff out because I was not taught to... And and I realized that what if Paul wasn't saying what we think Paul was saying, we just haven't asked the right questions of the text. So we've landed... At different conclusions. Mm-hmm. I share all this to say. You ain't gotta believe what I you know that. You don't. But in a world that is polarized and decides that we like our own truth, in a society that is polarized and talks about Christian unity until we're blue in the face. In a society that can't seem to get our act together even as a church with what we believe matters to Jesus, can we at least open the book? Can we at least get together and decide that we're going to open the scriptures together and we're going to challenge how we approach the scriptures together and try to read it with a different kind of approach that is intentional and trembling and humble and purposeful and understanding that the scriptures wasn't written to me and you? It was written to disclose who God is and what God's intentions are with the world and our role in that world. So if we're going to disagree, let's disagree. Let's open the scriptures to do so. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.